0: Good morning again. As we come to uh, study and listen and hear from God's word again, uh, please pray with me. Father, we do thank you for your word uh, because it is perfect and revives our souls. We thank you for your word because it is sure and makes wise uh, where we are simple. We thank you for your word, Lord, because it is right and rejoices our hearts. We thank you for your word, Lord, because it is pure and enlightens our eyes. We thank you for your word, Lord, because it is clean and endures forever. Your word is righteous altogether, and more is it to be desired than gold, than fine gold. Father, your word is sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I pray as we listen and receive your word that we might be warned, Lord, because in keeping your word there is great reward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So that was Psalm 19, and we're going to look at Psalm 77 today. Now, I wonder why people love the Psalms. I don't know if you love the Psalms. Um, early on in my, before I was a Christian either, somebody gave me a New Testament, and I was thinking, "What's well, this is interesting, the New Testament, and, but it was, there was no Old Testament except the Psalms. So the New Testament and the Psalms were put together. So why do the Psalms have such widespread appeal? So much that this little Gideon Bible had the New Testament and the Psalms and none of the Old Testament in it. Well, it could be that it's it's one of the most quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament. Along with Isaiah, there are more quotes uh, by people in the New Testament, writers in the New Testament, and speakers in the New Testament than any other book except Isaiah. So, it's not just us who love the Psalms. It's been loved by God's people uh, throughout Scripture. Jesus quoted the Psalms. Um, so, that their appeal is timeless. Maybe it's because the Psalms are honest, that they reflect the whole human experience. We talked about laments. We see laments in the Psalms. We see rejoicing in the Psalms. We see the whole spectrum of emotions experienced by mankind in the Psalms perhaps that's why we love them in fact the Hebrew word for the book of Psalms is telahim songs of joy and yet we see songs of sorrow and songs of lament so in some ways I think we see ourselves in the Psalms it helps us express our own emotions it's a voice really for our hearts and our souls Because there are times when our souls are lamenting and are sorrowful. And there are times when our souls are rejoicing and uh, praising God as well. Maybe we love them because they have a unique place. They're, They're different from the rest of God's Word, though they are God's Word. Because in the Old Testament, New Testament, we think of God speaking to His people. But in the Psalms, we see God's people speaking to their God. And that's what we want to do, I think. We want, to, we want to hear from our God, but we want to speak to our God as well. And He's made us to uh, praise God together. So to hear other people's prayers, uh, to hear other people's praises, is, is a wonderful thing. In fact, the Psalter, the accumulation of the Psalms, was actually uh, a prayer sung to God. That's, that's how the Psalms have been used throughout the church history. So the psalms really speak about our relationship with god the 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 overarching theme of the psalms is a relationship with god the father a covenantal relationship between god the father and his people his people israel and his people in the new testament too so perhaps we love them because they're so diverse as well if you think about the covering of the psalms they were written probably over about a thousand years by a huge collection of different writers. And yet, there's great unity and harmony in their message. Many of people have tried to sort of put them together in certain themes and say, oh, here's a chapter. Some people have said, oh, it looks like the Pentateuch. There's five chapters within the Psalms. Uh, and, and maybe that's true. Uh, but really, a great element is that they're very dynamic, dynamic in how they're put together. They've... Uh, Sometimes halfway through, I think in Psalm 72 or 73 somewhere, it says that this, this ends the Psalms of David, and then there's more Psalms after that, so as though others have been stuck on the end in some way as well. So it's this dynamic collection that uh, historically, there's no specific part of history, uh, function, there's no specific part uh, in function. They weren't all used in, in Old Testament worship. Um, but they, they have been used to worship throughout time. So Luke's gonna do a whole series on the, the book of Psalms. I think that's his next series coming up. So I didn't tell him I was gonna do this one, so I hope I haven't sort of stolen anything from him. Is this on, microphone, is this on, so. But I think we love them because they're really emotion-filled uh, and they show that we're designed to worship God. They're really a book of worship for us. And if you go right back to the beginning, Psalm number one is really our entry into this worship. It lays out who we are as worshipers. And there's two kinds of worship laid out in Psalms. As within Proverbs, there's laid out the wise and the foolish. In Psalms, there's laid out, presented to us, the blessed and the wicked. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So we enter into this book of worship through this idea that there are the blessed and the wicked, depending on how we stand uh, with respect to his word. So we enter into the Psalms to meet our king, our savior, In the Psalms, God's presented as our protector, our rock. He's our shepherd and our redeemer. So we join worshippers through the ages as we enter into the book of Psalms to worship a God who is the same throughout the ages as well. So the Psalms present us with a choice, and it shows really that in our hearts we're often conflicted. Right at the beginning in the Psalms there's lots of laments, And as it works through, there's many more praises. But in each psalm by itself, there's the conflict of God's people. You often see the beginning of a psalm, you see a lament, and at the end of the song, you see a praise. Almost every psalm ends with good news that there is hope. So I want to illustrate. This choice of worship, this choice of who we are, this conflict of our souls and our hearts, by looking at Psalm 77 and show that even as we are God's people, God's covenant people, under God's redeeming love, that very often we allow our hearts to become disoriented and misdirected. And I think why we love the Psalms is because it shows that very often we're disoriented and misdirected but in God's grace, in Christ, we're reoriented. We are righteous and blessed. We can be joy-filled and assured, and therefore be a witness to the nations. So turn with me to Psalm 77, and we're going to look here at a prayer of Asaph, and he writes something like 10 or 12 Psalms. Uh, we, we were introduced to Asaph in, in Chronicles, where he, he was the one who made music as the Ark of the Covenant was moved from the, the house of Odeb-Edom to Jerusalem. There was, uh, there was singing at that time, and he was the leader of that worship. In 1 Chronicles 25, um, Asaph is mentioned as uh, one of the families who served Lord with, the Lord w- w- with their gifts of their musical abilities. So Asaph was a singer, and he's written many of these psalms. But not only do we see this song, but in Psalm 77, we see a window. We have a window into what's going on in his soul, what's actually going on to his heart. I wonder what that would be like for you if somebody could open a window and look into the activities of your heart, of your soul. So I've called this uh, this series, this psalm, Remember the Future, and you'll see why. That when we look back at it reminds us of what the future's going to be. And then as I was studying it, I said, no, I think this is about a worshipless worshipper. So I nearly called it Worshipless Worshipper. And then I thought, no, it's really about a disoriented sheep. Because we'll see in this psalm that God's the shepherd and Asaph actually wants a shepherd. So because I'm a vet, I think I'm going to call this the disoriented sheep, even though he is a worshipless worshipper. And we're going to see... That, he's, that Asaph refuses to worship, and then he's reminded to worship, and then he's redeemed to worship. So Psalm 77. To the choir master, according to Jedathun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. And when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lit up, lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So, it's all looking good doesn't it when we start off we see Asaph as a man troubled but seemingly seeking the Lord with great confidence and assurance he says I cry aloud to God aloud to God and he will hear me now that's what you want to hear from your children isn't it I'm in trouble but I'm confident that God is going to hear my cry and this cry is a lament the word used for cry is actually a lament It's a mourning that he is, it, it almost reflects the people in Egypt, in slavery, letting out this cry to God. And he's confident, he says, that God's going to hear me. But the context of this whole psalm actually says that that's not really true. He sounds like he's praying confidently, but he's actually refusing to worship God. The next few verses tell us that there's an underlying, not just a doubt, but a rejection of who God is. His cry is actually one of hopeless despair, of godless despair. He's expressing something something outwardly, he's praying, but his prayers are not towards God. They're outward, but not Godward. They're not worshipful prayers. So does that sometimes reflect your prayer do you sometimes feel that your prayers aren't really worshipful they're really prayers of what you want or prayers of complaint or or prayers of anger towards god we might say that he's godly because he prays without ceasing doesn't it say in thessalonians that uh we're to lead our lives uh praying without ceasing it says rejoice always pray without ceasing give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of god in christ jesus for you because asaph is certainly praying isn't he it said that he's in verse two he's tirelessly seeking the lord in the day of my trouble i seek the lord in the night my hand is stretched out without wearying so all night he's praying he's stretching out his hand that's the position a prayer. But look at the state of his soul in verse 2. My soul refuses to be comforted. Not that it can't be comforted. It refuses to be comforted. He's saying that he has a stubborn soul, a resistant soul. We could say maybe a rebellious soul. Even if God would comfort me, I don't want to be comforted. It's a bit like I'm not picking on my own children, but imagine a child, not my children, my children don't do this, but imagine a child who uh, a father or a mother would want to come and comfort them, and they'll say, no, I'm going to my room. They're refusing to be comforted. Not that the father or mother couldn't comfort it, they're refusing to be comforted. They're rejecting the love offered by their father. And he says that he recognizes that he's in a day of trouble. We don't really know what the trouble is. It's never really described in this whole psalm what that trouble is. In other psalms, we see psalmists who are wronged. We see David uh, wronged by a Saul. Uh, we see psalmists that have suffered loss, uh, the loss of loved ones or, or the loss of a kingdom. We see psalmists who are persecuted. We see psalmists that are under personal attack. All those would be days of trouble. But here we don't exactly know what Asaph's trouble is. None of these are really mentioned. But in verse 3, we can sort of see the extent and the direction of this trouble, He says, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. So he thinks the source of his trouble is God himself. He's saying, God, thoughts of of you. And by the way, in this first part, he's not even talking to God. If you notice that in the prayer, he always speaks of God as though he's distant. In the third person, he says, God, God, God. So this is a prayer that's speaking about God as being distant for the first nine verses. So he's saying that thoughts of you, God, bring me dismay and bring me pain. Thoughts of God bring me dismay and bring me pain. What state is his soul in? It's a soul that's refusing to be comfort. It's a soul that the very thought of God brings him dismay and pain. Now that's a disoriented heart his heart's gone the wrong direction even though his prayer is outward his heart is not god in so much so he says that it's because of you i can't sleep he says even when i think about you even when i pray to you the pain is so bad that i can't sleep he says you hold my eyelids open i'm so troubled that i cannot speak he's praying but he says i don't even have words because you're making me so mad He blames God because God will not answer him he blames God because he thinks God's abandoned him how do we know that Well, in verse 4 to 9 he says he says at first I considered the days of old the years long ago and some translations say I I consider the songs of, of long ago he's trying to sort of think even when I look back in my my former life when early on in my life when you were there that doesn't bring me any comfort he says, Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And my spirit makes a diligent search. All sounds godly, but really, he's still questioning God. He's speechless. He's sleepless. And he's troubled. And these thoughts are not helping him. He's discouraged because God will not answer his prayers. And then he sort of, you could see him listening to himself rather than speaking to himself. He's listening to his heart rather than speaking to his heart. Which is dangerous because it says in Jeremiah that our hearts are wicked and deceitful. And it says as God's people, we shouldn't listen to our hearts. We should speak to our hearts. That's why we pray, praise. That's why we encourage one another. That's why we meditate on Scripture. Because we need our hearts to be renewed. Because his hearts betray His words betray his heart just like for every man our words betray our hearts in Mark chapter 7 it says what Jesus says what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts sexual immorality theft murder adultery what we say to each other what we say to other people reflects what's going on in our hearts what we say to God Your prayers reflect what's going on in your heart. And he reveals his doubts by laying out six questions. He has six questions, and they're not rhetorical. They're actually questions that question the character of God, his actions, and his promises. And he's really saying in these questions, he's saying, who are you, God? Is what you say true? And what are you going to do? Because I don't believe those things anymore. He questions that God has abandoned him, that has rejected him. He questions God's favor on his life. He questions God's loving kindness and his promises, his graciousness and his compassion. So they're fairly, they are major accusations against a loving God. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious has he in anger shut up his compassion now if he'd have gone to God's Word he'd have had all of the answers for these poor Asaph but he was listening to himself but all of those will God cast me off forever if Romans 11 1 now he wouldn't have had Romans then I know but I ask then Has God rejected his people Paul says, by no means Psalm 94 for the Lord will not forsake his people he would not abandon his heritage So will the lord cast him off forever his word says no what about will he be favorable no more will he cause grief and have no compassion lamentations 352 says for though he causes grief he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love is his mercy gone forever well no his mercy endures forever. Psalm 103:17 says, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Well, does his promise fail? Is it, imp- no, because it's impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6:18 says, so that there are two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us has God forgotten to be gracious? Well, no. He can't deny himself. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, a steadfast love and faithfulness. Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? No. Lamentation says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So the answer to all of Asaph's questions were actually in Scripture but in that we get a clue as to what's going on in his heart because he's concerned about God's anger and God's anger in Scripture is only turned towards sin he said in God's anger will he reject me so Asaph is responding to his own sin or continuing in sin and his response actually shows what his heart needs. Because in, that, in the next passage, in the next chapters, in verses 10 and onwards, what's going to encourage him is God's promise of redemption. In fact, God's act of redemption in the past. So here he is, a heart that's disoriented, that needs reorienting by God's redemption. And the transition to that wonderful last section is actually in verse 10. He says, then I said then I said you see we all need a then or we all need a verse 10 really this is when he remembered to worship he refused to worship and then he remembered to worship then I said I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Lord of the Most High so he's now remembering something about God See, in a believer's life, there should always be a furthermore or a then or an accordingly. This is a point of repentance, the point of reorientation. And we don't know exactly what happened in verse 10. Why why in verse 9 is his heart stubborn and verse 10, he suddenly says, I'm going to turn to the Lord. I'm going to appeal to this, the years of the right hand of the Lord. I'm going to look back and see what God has done in history. Now, maybe this was a faithful friend, a faithful wife or a brother who pointed him towards the truth of God's word. Maybe it was a pastor, an elder, maybe a sermon, maybe a podcast. They didn't have podcasts then. Okay, they didn't have podcasts. But there's, some, there's a change from disorientation. There's a reorientation. And we'd call that repentance. Verse 10 is about repentance. Something by grace, his faith was inflamed. Don't forget, he's one of God's people. This is Asaph. He's one of God's people. And the mystery of the cooperative work of the Spirit, taking God's word and reorienting the soul as you repent. He repented. And look what he says. The reorientation, the first nine verses, he's been a servant without a king, a sheep without a shepherd, a child without a father, a worshiper who was not worshiping. And then suddenly the truth, the Spirit takes the truth of the verse 11 to 20, applies it to his heart, and he starts to worship again. Then I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy, what god is great like our god now he's calling god you he's calling god our god very different from the first nine verses you are the god who makes who works wonders you have made known your might among the peoples you with your redeemed you who you with your arm redeemed your people the children of jacob and joseph his heart desires redemption His worship is restored because he now looks back and sees that, oh my God is a redeeming God and I need redemption. Even as a believer, I need ongoing redemption. I'm a sheep and I need a shepherd. I'm a servant and I need a king. I'm a child and I need a father. As a believer, I need the things that God has said who he is. He says what he does and he says of what he will do. God's Spirit and God's Word reorienting Asaph's heart. The cry of his heart, the assurance that his heart needed, the change that his heart needed was the cry of every heart. It was the cry for redemption. And this Old Testament passage that we read about earlier, that Jim read, when Moses and his people reached the other side and praised God for redeeming them from slavery, is the cry of every heart now from listening to himself through god's word he starts to speak to himself the truth of god's redeeming love in his own life the redemption of god's people was an assurance of the redemption of asaph and his own disoriented heart he appeals and remembers and ponders the wonderful works and the mighty deeds of not just god but he calls him the most high so we see this change the language of worship is restored to him he says things like your way is holy What God is great like our God? Whatever false idols that he was looking at, he's now recognized there is no other God except you, our Most High. And the language he used in this last section is mixed. You probably recognize the language of the rescue of Israel from Egypt, the flight through the Red Sea, but there's also creation language in there. He's saying, he talks about the thunder and the rains and the the waters coming up from underneath. So, there's, there's also um, language from Sinai of thunder and lightning of God's judgment. So, so, there's all these mixed pictures of God's redemption the redemption of the creation from chaos, the redemption of people in slavery uh, to let my people go so that they might worship me, uh, to the redemption uh, through uh, the law as well. But the most obvious is the language of this. Uh, Of Moses and of Aaron. I mean, right in that last verse, he says, You led your people like a flock by the land of Moses of Aaron. He recognizes now God's power and his presence and his guidance. And we see this lost sheep of Asaph reoriented by the great shepherd who led his people Israel out like a flock. We see, but Asaph's, he's no different from us, really. We are so easily disoriented, our souls are so easily distracted. Our worship is so easily derailed. Our prayers are so often outward, but not Godward. Our hearts, even as God's people, need redeeming on a day-to-day basis. For Asaph, the assurance of God's presence and his guidance and his love was a redemption of people from Egypt. We heard about that in the Song of Moses. But for us, we remember the future by remembering the redemption that's been secured for us by the death and the resurrection of our precious Lord Jesus. Because his redemption was a greater redemption in time and place. Scripture says that in him we're redeemed from the bondage of the law and from the curse of the law, from the power of sin, from the power of death. In Christ we're redeemed, it says, from all troubles in Psalms 25 verse 22. In Psalms 130 it says we're redeemed from all iniquity it says that we're redeemed by from all evil we're redeemed from the present evil age we're redeemed from aimless conduct we're redeemed from our enemies we're redeemed from destruction we're not just redeemed from Egypt we're redeemed from all of those things and because of what Christ did it's the promise that our souls and bodies will be redeemed in the future And be glorified into heaven our lives our inheritance our bodies and our souls have been purchased by the blood of christ we've received the forgiveness of sins we've been adopted and purchased and purified so why do we love the psalms because it tells us about christ why do we love the psalms because even though there are laments there's a joyous ending there are praises because of christ because of his redemption and the lord jesus himself in luke chapter 24 when he was on the road to emmaus told us that the psalms are actually about him he said these are my words that i spoke to you while i was still with you that everything written about me in the law of moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled so we love the psalms because They help us pray to the Lord Jesus. And in some ways, they're also the prayers of the Lord Jesus because he was the man of sorrows and he suffered as we suffer. We see ourselves in in the, in the Psalms, but we see Jesus in the Psalms as well, not only in prophecy, but in crying out to his God. You see, he came to live a life as the Son of Man. He knows our troubles. He experienced our troubles. And as it as his people he enters into our troubles he is our great shepherd we're his sheep he is our great king and we're his servants so by his grace and his mercy he redeems us from his from his from our troubles so that we might worship him let's pray father we thank you for your wonderful word we thank you for your glorious son for his work on our behalf lord on the cross we're so grateful that we uh, are your people father forgive us when our hearts become so easily disoriented and distracted but we thank you that by your grace and through faith lord our hearts are reoriented towards you that we can walk uh, safe in assurance of who you are of what you have done and of what you will do We love you, and we praise you, and we love one another, and we thank you for your word today, and we offer it to you in Jesus' name.